Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Eve McDonald for a conversation about Hannibal. On June 23rd, 2021, Dr. McDonald joined the show. And in that episode, we covered the, the state in a historical context, Carthage. And Hannibal was a military leader within uh, Carthage and, uh, and came up in that dialogue. And uh, Dr. McDonald is back on the show. And we're going to zero in more on Hannibal's life in this conversation and get a better understanding of who he was and what scholars know about the early period of his life. Um, his uh, activities in adulthood uh, in terms of being a military commander and a statesman and what's known about his family life, etc. in the later period of his life. Dr. McDonald is a lecturer in ancient history in the School of History, Archaeology and Religion at Cardiff University, based in Wales. She is author of the monograph, Hannibal, A Hellenistic Life, which was published by Yale University Press. And Dr. McDonald joins the show today from London, UK. Welcome back on the show, Eve. Hello, Andrew. Pleasure to be here. It's good to connect with you again, Eve, as always. So to start the conversation, Eve, can you share, to create enough background and context for the dialogue, who Hannibal was, and then we'll, of course, work our way into the details. Yeah, so Hannibal was a Carthaginian uh, military commander and politician. He lives uh, from 247 BC to about 182 BC. So he covers, his life covers the end of the third century and into the beginning of the second century BC. He's probably one of our best known Carthaginians. There's not very many Carthaginians that we know very much about. And, and in fact, some, in some ways, everything that we know about Carthage from ancient literary sources seems to be tainted or tinted in some way through this view of Hannibal because he was such an important figure in the Roman imagination because he fought these epic war, this epic war with Rome. And so that's really you know, who he was in terms of his memory and his legacy. What are the main sources that scholars rely on to understand Hannibal and you don't have to be comprehensive in the in the answer but can you can you um, and, and please cite a, cite a, cite a few uh, to create enough understanding of um, who, who actually wrote wrote about him and is it only writings that uh, scholars rely on predominantly or is there any other types of items that uh, help um, people in modern times understand who Hannibal was yeah, so that's, that's a good question. So I, I, I want to say there's three types of evidence, really, that we can rely on. One is Roman literary sources, mostly. And so that's people who wrote um, Roman and, and Greek uh, in the Roman and Greek languages, usually under the auspices of the Romans, about Roman history. So they're one of our sources. We have some evidence that comes, material evidence that's quite interesting, that comes from coins um, that were minted in in Carthaginian Spain um, at the sort of late third century BC. And then we have a little bit of evidence uh, from some battle site excavations that's quite recent about uh, sort of the period in which Hannibal was fighting. So we have those three sources by far the most important and the most, you know, the largest is the um, are Roman literary sources, and, and those would be Polybius, and what I call Polybius a Roman literary source, even though he was a Greek who wrote in the Greek language, but he's writing the history of the Romans' rise to power for a Greek audience. So he is writing, you know, really from a Roman perspective. Then from Polybius, we go to Livy, who's really famous, his book on the foundation of the city is one of the most important sources that has existed from Rome all the way through until today, um, from Roman times. And it tells the whole story of, of Rome's rise to power as well. So those are our two big sources for 
um, for Hannibal and who, who Hannibal was and how he fits into the, the bigger story of the Mediterranean. We have some hints that there was a lot more material out there. We have some missing ancient historians who wrote the history from Hannibal's point of view, but we, and we know that, say, Polybius had read those. So, you know, we, ha we have hints and bits and pieces that tell us about Hannibal that turn up from later sources as well, much later, like second century AD, um, people writing about, again, Rome's story and Rome's rise to power. And when people began to be fascinated by this empire, that was Rome, Hannibal plays such a big part in their story and their rise to power that, you know, inevitably we get bits and pieces of information about him. So even into the fifth century AD with the late Roman historian Erosius, he'll get bits and pieces of the story of the um, of Hannibal and the Punic Wars from them. So there's a lot of literary material, but not none of it really is firsthand. So none of it comes from anybody who knew Hannibal or who actually lived during the time he fought his wars with Rome. Although Polybius would have probably been about 17 years old when Hannibal died. And so I think actually Polybius would have been very much aware, you can imagine kind of the teenager uh, in Greece thinking about this amazing, really famous man by this point who had been this epic general who had defeated the Romans in battles. No one was able to do that afterwards in, in many, many ways. And so I think Polybius's view is probably in, in some ways our best view. And, and I, I'm, I'm of course not alone with that. Most people would assume Polybius is the best source that we have for this period. He's certainly the only one that's even remotely contemporary. Okay, thank you for uh, expanding on, um, on the sources in the background. Um, what's known about where and when? So yeah, I think you said, I think you said the when, I think you said 247, but please bring it into your response again as necessary. What, what's, what's known about uh, where Hannibal was, uh, was born? Okay, this is, I think it's really interesting to try and figure this out, in fact. So we know he's born in 247 BC. So he's born right in the middle of the first Punic War. So that's the very first war, as, as your you know, audience will know, that, that Rome um, fought against Carthage. And that was fought mostly over Sicily. And we know that his dad, Hamilcar, is in Sicily fighting that war. But, so we don't know where he was born. We assume he's born at Carthage. We don't know if the families traveled with the um, military commanders at, at, at this point in time. So we're assuming that he's born in Carthage. Um, it would have been fairly easy to go back and forth between Sicily and Carthage at this point, so it's not impossible. And it was 247 BC. And we know that he spends the first nine years of his life in Carthage. Um, we, we assume that he's brought up there. We, we're, we assume that's where he's educated uh, as a young boy. And uh, we know that he leaves Carthage with his father and around 238, um, something like that, and he goes off to Spain. So from one to nine, from zero to nine, he's brought up. He's got three older sisters that we know about, and then he has two younger brothers. He may have had more siblings. We don't know about them. We don't know about his mom. Uh, we know lots about his dad, and or, or more about his dad. And um, we don't know where the family fits in the hierarchy of Carthage, but there's some really interesting theories about it that you know, they belong to this, the word in the Punic word is Rab, and um, it was a, a military commander, and it seems there might have been a sort of a military aristocracy, a military class. Um, at Carthage, we think that perhaps the newest theories are that he may have come um, in origin from a family that was outside of Carthage itself, maybe from in what is modern Libya today, a place called Barque. And we, we think that perhaps because the name of the family is Barkid, and we think it's related to the geographic location of their origins. That would have been a few generations earlier though. So they were Carthaginians. They're of this elite military class within the Carthaginian society. Um, and we think he's brought up in Carthage, although he has family estates further south 
in Tunisia down near Hadrumetum, which is modern Seuss, which I hope you get to, I like a lot. And um, that may be where the family estates were. So that can, that's sort of where we are when it comes to what we know about his early years before they go to Spain. Okay, and I hope I can get to Seuss as, as, as well sometime uh, while I'm here. Um, you mentioned five siblings. Is it known or presumed they were full siblings or is it really not not known because of some of the the gaps in the in in the in the records around the family ah that's interesting um i think full siblings um considered to be full siblings as far as we know we don't have much indication of any sort of um certainly not polygamy amongst the carthaginians uh, in, in any way, that if, if they were multi-marrying, we certainly would have been told it by the Roman sources because the Romans like to emphasize all the ways that some of their enemies aren't like them. So um, we're assuming it's one full siblings or, you know, it's quite possible, of course, given the mortality rates, um, that there, there are two. But we think, you know, he's quite closely connected to some of his brother-in-laws. So, you know, there's, there's that idea that there is a close connection between Hannibal and his sisters and his sisters' families. And the sisters are married for political strategic reasons, certainly. Just as women were at this point, it's really important to understand that, is that women in, in elite, any sort of elite societies across the Mediterranean were used for political alliances and military alliances. And the, the, the few things we do know about Hannibal's sisters is that they're engaged in that process. And then his two brothers are younger and they, of course, travel with him and his father when they go off to um, Spain and to the Iberian Peninsula. And he's quite, he seems to be quite close to his brothers. Certainly they fight with him and, and they're a key part of his grand strategy. Is it known or inferred what languages um, he would have known? And I would have asked that question anyways in this type of uh, episode on someone's life. Um, but what's in interesting about some of what you've shared so far, Eve, is he was he was raised in uh, Carthage in northern Africa, and and then he's and then he said around probably nine years old or so he's in the Iberian uh, Peninsula. So is it known or inferred what what languages he would have uh, learned? Yeah, so for sure, of course, he would have known Punic or, you know, that's the language, that's the word we use for the language of the Carthaginians. So that, you know, is a Semitic language, not too far away from, from Hebrew. Um, and then uh, he would have been educated fully in Greek. And we know that he spoke Greek. Greek was what we call the lingua franca of the ancient Mediterranean and in this period. So any educated um anybody really of an elite class anywhere in the Mediterranean probably knew and functioned at a quite high level in Greek. We assume that he also probably knew Iberian um, because the Iberian uh, Peninsula is where he, he fought. He had many soldiers who um, supported him all the way through his adventures who were from the Iberian Peninsula and the family of the Barkids had engendered great loyalty amongst many of the tribes. And we know that his wife, if what well, we don't know, but if he was married, he was that we know about the only mention of we have, it comes from a, a poet named Silius Italicus, but he had a wife who was Iberian. Um, and then, you know, he would have also been, he was, and the family was very closely connected to the Numidian people and the Numidian people Today we call them Amazir. Uh, we, they were often called Berber in, in the last few hundred years. Um, the ancient sources call them Numidians or Libyans. And um, there's a lot of very close family connections as well. So he was a bit of a polyglot, we would assume. He could certainly speak. We don't know. He spent a long time in Italy, assuming he might speak some Latin, but he didn't really hang out in the Latin speaking parts of Italy. He was in the Celtic parts in the north or in the Greek-speaking or Oscan-speaking part of the south. So, um, yeah, I think he was a great communicator and he certainly had great language skills. And one of the things I think is really interesting is that even though he could have um, spoken to Roman commanders in a shared language, if they didn't uh, both speak each other's language, they certainly both Roman and Carthaginian commanders in Hannibal and say Scipio, his nemesis, spoke 
Greek, we know that, but when they chose to meet and had any kind of discussions, it was all done through interpreters. And it's so interesting to think about language of power, language of, of communication and negotiation in those kinds of uh, interactions that we know about. But, but yeah, so he spoke a lot of languages, assumingly, but we don't, we don't have much evidence to prove any of that. Out of curiosity, if you happen to know, um, is there a is there a reasonable derivative in modern times to I the Iberian language? What would have been spoken in probably that more south southeastern part of Iberia at that given time? Do you know by chance? No, that's quite interesting. No, I don't know, and I don't think there is. So you know, once much of the Punic War was really about control of the Iberian Peninsula and control of Spain, the Second Punic War, and the and the mineral wealth and. You know, so it's it's we can't, so I, I think lose sight of that sometimes when we think about Hannibal because he's in Italy, but it's, there was a lot of really important fighting there, and um, that fighting goes on for quite a few centuries, all the way up until the Roman Emperor Augustus. That region is still unsettled, and it takes a long time for the Romans to conquer it. So there's a hugely independent spirit amongst the Iberians and the Celt Iberians who live there. It's a pretty a difficult place to conquer and so um, but it does get conquered and of course modern Spanish and Portuguese come basically out of Latin but with a an Arabic influence that's really quite strong in some of it as well because of the Arab conquest there and then Andalusia being so important for you know hundreds and hundreds of years so it's a bit of a mix in what we know about, but I would assume some of the dialects that we can, you could trace in places um, in the northern parts of Spain that are still Celtic connected, you know, the Celt-Iberian people were quite important. So, you know, there's probably bits and pieces and traces of it in some of the di local dialects, but that's all I can assume. Okay. Um, what's, uh, and this is, probably we're kind of uh, uh, moving away from a natural chronology but I'm very fascinated by, by this so I want to ask this uh, this this next next question um, what uh, and I, and it's, it's certainly related to to, to Carthage um, what's what's known about uh, Cartagena um, and and uh, Cartagena in Spain um, which is a beautiful city um, and uh, Alicante in, in Spain as well, which is probably about an hour hour away, uh, as it and it's Alicante is my my uh, probably my favorite um, city in in Spain personally. I, I connect very very well. There's, and and I should also say I, there's a lot of different parts in Spain that I absolutely love, but I connect very well with Alicante. Um, what's known about uh, Cartagena and Alicante as it relates to uh, Carthage and possibly Hannibal's life? Yeah, so, um, well, there's there's some controversies around um, Alicante, although many people think that that was a city that was founded by Hannibal's father, Hamilcar of Arca. Um, you know, when uh, the time in which Ham Hannibal, Hamilcar, and many, many of the generals in the Mediterranean in the third century BC were active, it was a time of conquest and and colonial foundation and city foundation. So it was really quite normal to go off to conquer and then to find a new city or found a new city. So some uh, there is some argument that Alicante is a city that was founded by Hamilcar Barca and um, Cartagena, uh, Cartagena or New Carthage or New New Carthage, um, it was founded by uh, Hannibal's brother-in-law, who, who was the ruler of the military in Spain, in between Hannibal's father and Hannibal, um, his name was Hasdrubal. And certainly, so those two places are thought to be um, Carthaginian colonial foundations and uh, certainly are evidence for um, Cartagena is better. There's, there's a huge amount of the Punic period defensive uh, infrastructure of uh, still excavated there and they've done a re there's a really good museum to go and see at the Punic Wall Museum I don't know if you've seen it but it's really interesting it shows how much the defensive outer wall of the city was sort of state-of-the-art Hellenistic defensive architecture fortifications um, these casemates where interior walls you know so you have two big walls and then you have rooms on the inside 
And so that's, that's pretty well documented. And then we also have some good descriptions that in Polybius, again, of Cartagena, that tell us a little bit about the city and how it would have looked in the period of just after the Second Punic War when Polybius visited it. So he describes some of the buildings there and um, it certainly was a city that was built to be a new Carthage in the Iberian Peninsula and um, it had a magnificent port and of course it still does. It's got the home of the Spanish Navy is there. So it, it's, a, it's one of those classic cities that's founded in, the, in this period um, by Phoenician or Carthaginian uh, people. And it's a city that's still a really vibrant and interesting place. So um, yeah, Alicante is interesting in a way because people aren't quite sure if it's Hamilcar city or not. And of course the problem is here is that both of these places are occupied, still pretty thriving places. And so you can't just go and dig up wherever you want to and actually find out the, the actual fact of it. It's a bit needle in a haystack when it comes to both places, getting all the details. Yeah, and for those uh, listening, if, uh, if you're in Spain in the future and looking for uh, different st spots that may not be the, the typical spots that uh, most, most people go to, certainly um, those two cities that uh, Eve and I are speaking about, I, I, I definitely recommend um, visiting. They're, they're, they're special in their own, in their own ways. Um, okay, so the Iberian Peninsula, he spent a lot of time there. Um, do you want to go over the main, kind of the main activities that, uh, would, have, that, that would have occurred in his life in, in Iberia? Yeah, so thinking about the nine-year-old boy who leaves Carthage with his dad and, and goes off on this big adventure with his brothers, he's, he's really brought up um, in this environment of, of military conquest uh, and elite sort of military uh, commander, so he's brought up to uh, be, you know, be a soldier, but he's also brought up and schooled in Greek. He's schooled in strategy. He's got tutors um, who are hired to teach him all these things, to teach him about great military leaders. So he would have learned all about Alexander the Great. He learned all about Pyrrhus, and he. Um, we know the name of two of them who were sort of people who wrote his story, but seemed to be connected to him. One of them was a Spartan whose name was Socialist, and another was a, a Greek from uh, Sicily, from Caliarte, uh, named Silenus. And so these two stayed with Hannibal um, through his journeys, write his stories, and also were connected to him as a tutor as well. So we know that's how he's growing up. We know very young, he starts, um, you know, we would consider very young, or 19. He's off leading raids for his, then he's with um, underneath the sort of auspices or command of his uncle and um, his brother-in-law and um, then uh, you know you get him taking command himself at about 25 years old he, he takes command of the all of the Carthaginian military forces that are in the Iberian Peninsula so very young he becomes a very uh, important man a very important military commander but you know when you, we talk about military commander we have to wrap up a whole lot of different things into that it's not just that he's doing sort of military fighting. He's um, training, he's also a diplomat, he's engaged in uh, trade. I mean, there's, there, there's sort of, you know, much more sort of multifaceted figures than, than we might think about when we think about what a general is. Because, you know, all of the generals at this time, whether these are Romans or Carthaginians or, or Hellenistic Greeks are operating often quite far away from wherever or whoever is supporting them. And, and so they're, they're the de facto political and military leaders in these regions. So it's quite an interesting and, and, and you know, substantial role he takes on very young. And it's part of the dynamic of the Hellenistic world that young commanders are sort of glorified. You, you know, celebrity command is a really important idea. So the youthful Alexander set the stage for all of those who follow afterwards and Hannibal very much fits into that role. He's young, he comes to power, he's dynamic, he's successful. He creates and is part of this kind of myth of success and of his, of his adventures. That was part of this time that he lived in. Can you go over his siege of um, him and uh, uh, obviously soldiers, the, the, their siege of uh, Saguntum in the Iberian Peninsula? And my understanding was that that, that, that activity appears to be a pivotal um, moment 
in terms of um, laying the antecedents for the Second Punic War, my understanding is uh, Rome, Rome uh, took offense to, to those ac activities. So I'm also curious, um, based on your research, if you interpret that as being uh, in alignment with the treaty that would have been in place from the First Punic War between uh, Rome and Carthage, or if, if based on your research, if you believe that that siege of Saguntum um, was in violation, uh, not consistent with that treaty. Uh, so one of the big problems we have with the siege of Saguntum is that the information is, we have no information. That our ancient source, Polybius, who's like the really good source that we have, who's better than everyone else, he calls his information the common gossip of a barbershop. So he's aware of how completely skewed his sources already are. So we, nobody's, nobody out there is t saying exactly what happened. So the best we can do to put this all together, the best assumption, and this is trying to come to it not from a Roman point of view, but just from, say, a point of view from somewhere in the middle between the two. So at the end of the First Punic War, the Romans impose a war indemnity of 20 years, and uh, a huge amount is paid annually by Carthage to Rome at, for this, it's a war treaty, an indemnity war debt. That is 20 years ends in 221 BC. So that a war starts within three years of that war indemnity finishing isn't a surprise, um, but there's certainly an awareness on both sides then that they're no longer part in this sort of war debt situation. Rome, um, Rome has very close allies in the region at Marseille. So ancient Massalia is, is a really important player in all this. And the people of Marseille, ancient Marseille, are um, wary of Carthaginian successes. So you can imagine the Carthaginian armies are conquering up the coast of Spain closer and closer. So there's a treaty, supposedly uh, the, the Ebro River Treaty, which is well north of the city of, uh, the, of Saguntum that, that supposedly states that Carthaginian sphere of influence is south of the Ebro and that Roman Marseille sphere of influence is north. But the problem is, is that Saguntum is south of this river. So Saguntum, we don't know exactly how or when they become allied to the Romans or friends is the word that is used by the Romans. But it certainly seems, and it makes total sense to me, that you're a city of some substantial importance in the region. And Saguntum is an amazing place. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's an incredible place, fortified city up on a hill. And, um, you know, so when, when you have this conquering power coming in, you have a dialogue between different cities that are already probably in competition. Some ally with the Carthaginians, others have want nothing to do with the Carthaginians. And so the Saguntines are obviously trying to figure out what they're going to do. And at some point, reach out to the Romans as the natural protectors against the Carthaginians. And that's how it all comes to pass. There's some political violence in the city of Saguntum and some pro-Carthaginian leaders are executed. We know that. So Hannibal's claim is that he's defending the pro-Carthaginians who've been executed. Uh, the other faction in the city is pro-Roman and it's really a proxy. It's a proxy for what is probably an inevitable war coming at that time as these two city-states, the two most powerful city-states in the Western Mediterranean are kind of extending their spheres of influence. That would be my best description of how it came to pass and whether, you know, the Romans like to construct the story that Hannibal was the evil aggressor here and that, you know, there was a great outrage, but this is all post much post events you know these are reconstructed stories and our sources are very clear they don't know what happened exactly we can't do any micro history around this we don't know the actual events that lead to the siege of saguntum but all we know is that hannibal lays siege to saguntum and um, spends close to maybe eight months laying siege to the city it, it, if you just take a look at where it is um 
and, and have a look at a photo of it for anybody listening. I mean, it's it's really a difficult place to lay siege to. He eventually takes it, and of course, you know, he destroys it, and this is considered to be the great outrage by the Romans, but the Romans do nothing to help Saguntum while the siege is being on, uh, elayed. So, and that goes on for eight months. So if you see what I mean, there's no real clear story here. It's a lot of um, after the fact, piecing together which seems to be going on rather than anyone actually telling us what happened on the ground at the time. Okay, yeah, and um, both states being um, uh, powerful in this period of, of time, uh, to me, it seemed like the that that next war almost seemed uh, inevitable at at some point. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, that's one of the geniuses of Hannibal uh, is that because the next war was inevitable, and and that year of two eighteen, you know, the Romans had already decided to attack Africa and attack Spain. I mean, it was decided they had picked their consuls. Their consuls were leading armies in Sicily and leading armies in Spain. They were already going to attack Hannibal. It had been decided that year. And Hannibal, by invading Italy, all he does is delay that inevitable, uh, but he really changes the paradigm of the war. And, and that's his great genius. And, and the Romans just never expected them to do this. Well, let, yeah, let's go there then as a natural segue. And we don't have to spend the whole episode on the Second Punic War. The, the show has, has covered the, the Second uh, Punic War, but, but I think we, um, and that, that was covered uh, a, few, a few days ago. I, I don't have the exact date, um, but it is findable. That was with Dr. Catherine Lomas of Durham University, if anyone wants to look it up. Um, but, uh, but let's cover a few of the, the, the key highlights during that, that period of time. I have a question about the crossing of the Alps with elephants. So what's what's known about how many elephants crossed the Alps, um, and uh, and and why, why Hannibal might have brought elephants with him to the Italian peninsula? Yeah, so the elephants. Well, so Hannibal sets off to change, as I said, the paradigm of the war. He wants to surprise the Romans. He absolutely needs to draw the Romans back into Italy, because the Romans have huge manpower advantages here, and they can sort of continuously feed their armies, as the Carthaginians found out in the first Punic War. They just can't match them. And so Hannibal has been schooled in all this. It's not like he hasn't learned this all. Uh, you know, he was brought up to understand military strategy. And so he was especially a student of Pyrrhus. And Pyrrhus famously said, Pyrrhus had invaded Italy and tried to defeat the Romans. We have Pyrrhic victories, of course. Um, and he famously said that the only way to defeat the Romans is to detach them from their allies. So Hannibal realizes he needs to go to Italy and he has to fight the Romans in Italy and he can't let the Romans come to Spain and he certainly can't let the Romans invade Africa because once they do that, Carthage is vulnerable and he can't defend both. So he sets off with his army, a big army of, you know, a huge amount of horse. The cavalry are really important in the story of Hannibal. And he also takes with him, we're told, 37 elephants. Now, why would you take 37 elephants with you? Well, because of everything to do with the shock and awe of it. Everything to do with the fact that you're taking these huge exotic beasts um, across a landscape in which most people wouldn't really have ever seen anything like it before. So it gives you, it adds to this whole sort of aura of your invincibility, of your fantasticalness. It's almost superhuman. And that's really what, again, you're going back to this idea of what mili how military commanders wanted to portray themselves. They wanted to be supported by the gods and they wanted to show themselves as being heroic. So the, the elephant is a key part of that story. Um, the elephants hadn't been used by the Carthaginians for that long, uh, probably about 60 years by that point. What elephants were being used by the Carthaginians is a matter of long debate and not everybody agrees. And, and um, I'm actually, you know, I have been parked in the back of, of my mind a project um, on this that will look at some DNA and, and, and try and get some idea of what kinds of elephants were being used. But the two, the two species are kind of African elephants, obviously, or Asian elephants, which came with Alexander the Great from India into the Mediterranean. 
So this is again Alexander's connection. You've got Pyrrhus and Alexander connected with elephants. You've got the idea of what a Hellenistic military commander does. And a Hellenistic military commander uses elephants. And so he takes the elephants and he goes and they march across the Alps. And the elephants are actually pretty okay. Um, you know, if they were elephants that came from North Africa, which is a possibility, it would have been a kind of interesting, um, interesting and very comfortable in the mountains because those elephants, um, you know, lived in parts of the Atlas and things in, in that region. So elephants do pretty well in the um, in the Alps. They're pretty sure-footed. They um, are very badly affected by the winter following the Alps, and that's where we think most of the elephants die. So we don't have too many more elephants in the story of uh, Hannibal that, that turn up after the crossing of the Alps. But the idea, I think shock and awe is really the best way to put it. And he's, you know, when you think about where he's going, he's going across the Iberian Peninsula into Gaul, into southern France, and then up into the Alps and into northern Italy. And these are Celtic tribes, so these are not people who would have had any contact with anything like this before. And those are the people he needs to win over to his side. He doesn't want to fight and defeat them. He wants them to join his, his army, his march. He wants to recruit soldiers. And so that's a way of doing it. Okay. Uh, yeah, it sounds like he, it was a pragmatic. Um, he was being pragmatic when he was in the Italian peninsula. Yeah, pragmatic indeed. The Romans were pretty, the Romans got used to fighting elephants, so they kind of lost their, they, you know, once he actually had to fight big Roman legions, it actually, the elephants wouldn't have been a huge advantage. The Battle of Zama, and um, I'm, I, if, if the pronunciation is, uh, my apologies if the pronunciation is a bit, bit off there, the Battle of Zama, do you consider it the, the decisive battle in that, that war? Um, was he present at that at that battle in northern Africa, and and why do you think? Um, and if he was was present with his his soldiers, why do you think he lost that battle? Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. First question: Do I think it's the decisive battle in the Second Punic War? No, I, I actually think the battles in Spain are the decisive battles in the Second Punic War. Um, I really, I absolutely, the most important things are happening in Spain. And it's about those resources and that support and the wealth and soldiers and things like that. So I would say that's more important. So once Scipio takes New Carthage and then he um, loses, uh, the, the, his Hannibal's brothers lose the battles of Alipa and, um, you know, by 206, really, it's all over. So Hannibal, by the end of, by, by that period, once Spain is lost, is really reduced to being sort of, hemmed in in southern Italy. Now, after the big victories that he wins in Italy, the Roman armies never meet him again in a standing battle in Italy. They won't meet him. And that's because Hannibal has a huge amount of local support against the Romans amongst Greek allies and Oscans and Samnites and so lots of people who didn't like the Romans in the second century, third century BC as well. When he has to come back to Africa, because Scipio has moved on and now invaded Africa, he has lost some of his key allies. And the key allies in this story were the Numidians. And the Numidian cavalry are absolutely fundamental to every success that Hannibal has in Italy. They're fundamental to the successes of his brothers in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula. And Scipio, is manages to recruit some of the key Numidian leaders over to the Roman side. And the Numidians are really having to negotiate these between these two powers and between this, these two warring factions, the Romans and the Carthaginians. The Numidians in the process of that are, are really coming more into focus historically for us and also starting to define themselves and their kingdoms a little bit more as well. So the, the allies are the key. In, in all of this story and in all of these battles and wars. And certainly um, when Scipio meets Hannibal at Zama, Scipio has the better army. He's got the better cavalry and he's got the better, better army. Some of Hannibal's soldiers, those who had survived the whole long journey from Spain over the Alps into Italy all the way down to the south, you know, 16 years with Hannibal, 
so incredibly loyal. Some of them come back to Africa with him, but he has a newly recruited army um, in some parts from Carthage, and the Carthaginians have been defeated already a couple of times. So these are not well-seasoned soldiers. These are newly recruited. And he also has elephants in that battle. And so it's a pretty close-run thing, even though Scipio's army is a superior fighting machine. They're closer-knit. They've been fighting together for more years that he you know, really is in, in many ways. And this is supposedly what Hannibal says to Scipio when they meet before the Battle of Zama. He's, you know, he actually says to Scipio, you are what I was at Cannae and Trasimeno, you know? So it's a bit inevitable, but he does a pretty good job, everyone says, the, re the records, but you know, that may be, I'm not sure exactly why, but everybody says Hannibal did a pretty amazing job fighting the battle he did, and he almost, it was close. It was a close run thing, but yeah, Scipio has a better army and that's why he lost. I, I don't think there's much controversy in that. Better cavalry, he's got better allies. And he lived, um, through the Punic War is my understanding. Do you want to cover what's known about his life after the Second Punic War? Yes, I think Hannibal after the Second Punic War is, is maybe even more interesting. Although, you know, our sources move away from him and so we don't have as much information about him. But he goes, you know, he, he, he flees the battlefield. He's chased by the Numidian king Massinissa and he goes to his estates um, down near Seuss um, which, uh, and he's there and he's recalled to Carthage and, and he, he says to the Carthaginian, to the, the Senate in Carthage, look, let's, you gotta make peace, don't be ridiculous. And we don't hear very much about him, say from 201 to 196 BC. So we don't know exactly what happens in those five years, um, but it's a tumultuous time, obviously post-war, there's a, there's a lot going on. Um, but in 196 BC, he becomes one of the political leaders at Carthage, one of what is called the Sufets, and that's a, a or um, the word comes from like judge in, in Punic. So he's like a consul to, in the Romans, and he's one of the political leaders in the Carthaginian state, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's a, it's a total phoenix from the ashes rebirth as a political leader, and it's certainly nothing he would have had much schooling in uh, to this point. So he becomes one of the Sufits at Carthage, and he's involved in, in this rebuilding of Carthage, certainly in this period. And then his opponents in the Carthaginian state, and of course Carthage, like Rome at the time, is, uh, is run by factional elites, competitive factional elites, and no one, not everyone at uh, Carthage is happy that Hannibal Barca is back in charge or in charge. And so, and that's of course the same in Rome. And so there's um, a kind of provocation. Hannibal's, uh, it's, it's, it's claimed that he's breaking the treaty by negotiating with Rome's new big enemy, whose name is Antiochus III, and who's the uh, king of the Hellenistic Seleucid Kingdom. And um, he, instead of being captured by the Romans and taken to Rome, which of course the Romans would love, he flees and he goes to the Eastern Mediterranean. And there he goes and joins Antiochus III at his court at Ephesus. And again, it's like this whole celebrity, celebrity commander. We get stories of him turning up in the theater. I love this story so much. Turns up in the theater at Ephesus. And if anyone of you have been to Ephesus, you know, it's this amazing building. And um, he turns up there to listen to a philosopher at Ephesus in a very sophisticated city. And this whispering murmurs go through the crowd as Hannibal, the great general, comes in. Um, Antiochus is never fully comfortable with Hannibal as his advisor. He's, he's never fully sure that uh, Hannibal, uh, perhaps Antiochus, a king, isn't happy with such a great sort of known celebrity figure as his, uh, as his commander. And anyway, Hannibal plays a, a minor role in, in Antiochus's fight against the Romans, which Antiochus loses. And then Hannibal has to leave Antiochus' kingdom. He goes again to another kingdom, that of Prusius, who's the king of Bithynia. And he, he leads a navy at that point. Um, there's some great stories about his, his trickery that he catapults 
um, clay jars filled with poisonous snakes onto the ships of his opponents. And of course, the opponents all laugh at that idea. And then, of course, their ships filled with poisonous snakes and they all jump overboard. But we don't know. These stories are, uh, you know, just myths and legends. But you get the impression of this sort of traveling hero, uh, an eternal enemy of the Romans at a time when the Romans are trying to conquer the Eastern Mediterranean. So the Romans are really unpopular and he's this figure that people kind of latch onto. And then he eventually dies. The Romans eventually do conquer everybody around him. And um, instead of being captured, he commits suicide. He's, he's in his 60s. You, you can imagine he never would have thought that he would have lived that long. The couple places that you cited where he spent some time, um, if you were to describe them on a, on a, on a map, um, how, would, where would you, how would you describe where those, those places were or are? Oh, so um, Ephesus, which is, you know, in western Turkey uh, and is one of the great ancient sites to go and see and visit. Just an amazing place. Um, and then um, the region of Bithynia, uh, certainly the, the, that's sort of in the northern part of Turkey, um, Bithynia and Pontus. So just like on the Asian side of Istanbul, you know, and in that area, uh, north along the Baxi coast and along the southern Mediterranean a little bit too. And um, he dies at a place um, called Labissa. And Labissa is just a suburb of Istanbul today. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, in that later period of his life, we're going to wait to um, wrapping up the conversation soon. In the later period of his life, uh, who are the main people that wrote about him? Well, almost nobody writes about him at this point, and so he just turns up in bits and pieces and stories. So a little bit in Livy still, but really as a bit player, Livy's focus turns entirely to Roman conquest of Greece and Asia Minor. So that really, he just appears in those stories, and he turns up in the oddest places. We know that where he dies, for example, becomes um, a place of pilgrimage, so where he's buried, but we only know about that from later Roman writers and early Byzantine writers. So almost nobody mentions really anything about him other than a bit in Livy and a few other places, but it's, it's quite like, all of it is sort of myth and legend. You get, um, you get stories about him in like the second century uh, AD satirists, first second century AD satir satirists uh, like Juvenal, for example, late first century um, he, Juvenal wrote in Rome and he, he, he kind of, Hannibal becomes this, like school kids have to learn stories about him. And we know in the first century AD, there were three statues of Hannibal in Rome. And, and so he turns up in odd places, but there's no narrative about what happened to him at the end. Okay. Uh, you'd mentioned, uh, you talked a little bit about um, uh, his, his parents. Um, you'd mentioned his mother wasn't in the records. You, you, uh, you mentioned his father, Hamilcar. Um, I think you might've mentioned a, a marriage. Is it known? how many marriages he may have had, um, one or more, and if he had any children? So, no, we don't know. So one marriage is mentioned, and that is a, to an Iberian woman who's um, an elite woman from a town called Castulo, which is in, in that region, not, you know, along the river that runs through Seville, the Guadalcavir River, or the River Baitis in antiquity. It was a very strategic town. So he's married to um, a woman whose name is Imel Kay, supposedly. Again, this is in a, an epic poem called The Punica by Silius Italicus. Um, and he um, uh, had one son in that story. And so we know that they returned to Carthage after, or you know, probably to the family estates when the Second World War, uh, Second World War, Second Punic War starts. Um, no mention of any other marriages, um, mention of various interactions with mostly females, um, but we, we have no idea what, you know, what he got up to in any way, personally. Um, supposedly in one of the cities or towns in southern Italy, uh, there was a woman who, you know, was his partner or he was attached to. That's, that's the sort of vagueness of it. This is such a story of boys. 
it is a boys own adventure told by boys about boys it's it's really interesting how few women turn up in the whole tale of the punic wars of hannibal's life so it and it'd be wonderful to know a little bit more about them because i think there's a, there's lots of interesting stuff there but yeah no nothing really you made a perfect segue for my um uh, one of two final questions. I'm going to ask both questions at the same time so you can tackle them in the response. What do you think, if you were to summarize, what do you think made him such a great uh, military leader? And if you were to meet, uh, and if the, you were to learn something about Hannibal that just isn't in the records, one thing, you only get, you only get to pick one, one thing for this uh, question. What's one thing about Hannibal's life that you would like to know as a scholar? Oh, okay. Um, so why was he a great leader? Well, I think he was a he, he must have been a really charismatic individual to have uh, kept the loyalty of his soldiers for so long. So I think he was obviously a brilliant strategic mind. Um, he, he must have been hugely organized and a great sort of manager as well. So you're thinking about running these massive military camps, keeping everyone fed, fine. It's an extraordinary thing to have done and succeeded at. And to have succeeded at without, we don't get a lot of um, evidence about desertions from his army or anything like that. So again, if there had been major desertions from his army, the Romans would have told us about it because that was something they liked to emphasize the bad stuff. So I think that's, that's it. So he was obviously very charismatic. He was obviously very, very well organized and he was a brilliant strategic brain. And I think these three, three things come together really make you know, make you a great leader, um, certainly at the time. If I could learn one thing about it, yeah, well, I, I think I actually would like to know more about his mother. I, I do think, we, you know, moms have a real influence on all kids. So I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking that, you know, to have a little bit more insight into the sort of social life of Hannibal, more generally speaking, I would like to know about. Sounds good. And as always, Eve, it's, uh, it was wonderful chatting with you. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. McDonald wrote and very germane to this conversation, obviously, is called Hannibal, A Hellenistic Life. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Eve and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.